Hier komen wij in vreemd. You're listening to Red Flag Radio, the podcast of Red Flag Newspaper here in Australia. My name is Rose Ward. We're recording the show on Indigenous land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So Red Flag Radio, if you don't already know, is a revolutionary socialist podcast and we talk about politics, we talk about history, theory and um, activism with people who are involved in the struggle. And if you enjoy the show, please help us spread the word by sharing on your social media and so on and we're getting quite a few listeners now so that's good and welcome to 2020 mm-hmm. a new decade and i'm joined again by liam ward who's the producer of the show here um who's a socialist activist as well and a filmmaker and our guest on the show today is louise o'shea who's part of the editorial team um at red flag the newspaper and website so welcome louise thanks Roz and liam and happy New Year, Liam. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Um, so the topic that we're talking about today was kind of prompted by a report um, last month in December of 2019 from Civicus, which is this organisation internationally that promotes and protects civil society. That's what they say they do. And they kind of get together all of the evidence that they can find to say whether different countries around the world are sort of more or less... Um, free in terms of their civil society. And what they found in the report last year, and this is a quote, is that the most alarming deterioration in civic space is occurring in Australia, that is in the Pacific region. So the Australian rating has basically been downgraded to um, a narrowed society from what it was previously considered an open society. And this is, um, Australia is one of seven countries to have gone down and the categories that you can go um, be uh, classified as are open, which is the best, narrowed, obstructed, repressed, or closed. And you can kind of imagine some of the countries that might be um, under those categories. And in this round of um, evidence collecting, India also was downgraded and is now in the repressed, which is like second from lowest, which is um, reflective of what's been going on there. But Australia, I guess when people think of Australia and they think of kind of the cultural stereotypes of Australia, the kind of laid back, open, chilled out um, political landscape and people and whatever, that you wouldn't necessarily think of Australia as having any issues with kind of um, freedom and civil society and civil liberties and all of that kind of stuff. Is that kind of a good place to start, Louise? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, just about the report, I think it's um, amazing it's taken this long to downgrade Australia given the deteriorating state of um, democratic rights here. It's been the case for some time that what used to be thoroughly permissible has become um, more and more difficult, that you get arrested more readily. The range of the criminal justice regime is much stricter than it's been in the past Um um, but it's also not worth noting that of the, I think it was nine countries that changed their rating, um, seven of which the rating got more repressive. And so what's happening in Australia is part of an international trend um, to greater authoritarianism all around the world. And I think that reflects that the political class everywhere um, 
has less and less legitimacy um, and rely more and more on intimidation and force um, because, you know, nowhere uh, do have they got enough to offer populations that they can command um, genuine support. Um, so that's, um, yes, Australia is part of that pattern. Um, but, yeah, the popular understanding of Australia is this sort of happy-go-lucky place where people are uh, equal, everyone's mates, um, it's a relaxed society. You chuck a prawn on the Barbie, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but of course, the the reality—well, not of course—the reality is quite different. And right from the beginning, from the federation of the Australian state, um, repression and social control has been um, a very prominent feature. So right from the beginning, there was um, a strict censorship regime uh, regarding what sorts of books, publications, and goods could be um, imported into Australia. Anything deemed uh, obscene, indecent, blasphemous, seditious, anything uh, also that um, was seen to excessively emphasise sex, violence, or crime. Which think about like how <laughs> much to popular to entertainment is about sex, violence, and crime. I think it's all quite excessive, honestly. But yeah, anything um, uh, can be counted as excessive, especially if you're Scott Morrison. Um, but yeah, anything could be um, and was quite readily put on a banned list and. It wasn't until nearly the 1960s that the banned list was even made public. So the customs department had a uh, very secret, very extensive regime of censorship that was not accountable in any way to the general public and they had to be forced to make it public. And even when they did that in 1958, it was only a small part of um, what was censored was um, made known to people. And the the justification they gave for this was that... um, this sort of fairly ludicrous situation where you've banned um, the banned list itself was that if you made the banned list public, people would seek out these books and publications and and goods, um, and you know, the, chiefly the Labor Prime Minister defended or um, argued that. Um, so it wasn't just Conservatives; it was also the Labor Party that said we couldn't possibly have people knowing about this, this seditious material because they would want to get a hold of it. Um, so. Yeah, that's that's characterised Australia. Australia was actually a laughing stock in the 1970s um, in a period where internationally there was a lot more openness. Um, Australia was known for being repressive and uptight, uh, far from being relaxed and comfortable or whatever. Um, got so bad that um, it was embarrassing even at times for the government in, in relation to a controversy about the capture in the rye, which obviously published in 1951, fairly immediately a classic and acknowledged as such internationally um, was a common present that US ambassadors gave to the uh, governments in the countries where they were stationed, um, was you know, given to the Australian government on this basis, displayed in the parliamentary library, but no one had bothered to, or had thought to inform the parliamentary library staff that this was actually one of the books on the banned list, um, which caused uh, a fairly awkward situation and some embarrassment for the Australian mm-hmm. government. So, th- yeah. Australia is not a place where freedom has been the norm or a priority. Australia also has no Bill of Rights, no formal protection of uh, democratic rights that um, a lot of other countries in the world have. Mm. And I guess one of the things historically would be, you know, the settler population being a lot of people who were considered in inverted commas criminals, then the idea that you had to kind of control the population through various legal measures and banning things and controlling things has been part of the kind of legacy of that um, colonial experience as well. Our 
When we talk about a kind of creeping authoritarianism, I guess it's sort of creeping in a way and very blunt in a bunch of other ways. But let's start to unpick uh, some of those issues. So um, where would we start with that? Like stuff around press freedom as a particular issue, what kind of other things? Yeah, I think press freedom's at the forefront of people's minds at the moment because of um, the raids um, now last year and the um, campaign by some of the, well, the media outlets for um, greater press freedom. But I think what sort of frames the whole situation is the um, uh, September 11 terrorist attacks and onwards, the political environment created uh, in the aftermath of September 11 whereby... Um, national security became a, a, something to bow down before any incursion on rights was deemed acceptable if it was in the name of standing up against terrorism and defending national security. Um, and you know, this is something that happened everywhere in the world. But Australia, a country that's never been affected by a major terrorist incident, um, has actually passed more national security laws aimed at controlling terrorism than um, the UK, Canada, and even the United States, yeah, where obviously it's the it? main issue. Yeah, and it's not just conservative governments. A lot came, was um, enacted under Howard, but the Rudd and Gillard years saw a steady stream, um, and it's something that Labor's backed uh, every time the uh, conservatives have pushed it as well. And so Australia has this absolutely immense and expansive um, national security sort of powers that the government's able to exercise against people, uh, not that they have necessarily exercised all of these powers, but they're there waiting to be used against people if the situation arises and the government needs to. Um, and a lot of them have already been used. So um, the collection of people's um, of metadata, the government uh, has um, used it a number of times in criminal investigations. I think there's 87 times it was used um, to investigate journalists, which is one of the things the journalists are concerned about. And so the government is keeping a, using these powers to keep a very close eye on what information is out there and targeting journalists is a big part of that, but also targeting uh, whistleblowers who might, may not always be the traditional definition of journalists but are still doing the same, performing the same function of getting information out there to the public about what the government is doing so that people can um, know the government can be accountable and governments don't want to be accountable. Mm. And I think that goes to the kind of... Um strictness of um, expectations for public service employees as well now with the whistleblower laws and the expectations um, even on academia as well around kind of what you're allowed to publish and what um, the government are allowed to um, consider part of your working life or not all of of the kind of personal stuff that's brought in and my personal experience (laughs) in that just came into my mind but um, you know the idea that everything is a question of security, which is part of the things around press stuff as well. Like, oh, and you know, where sh- that that whole bringing into question where you draw the line on when something should be secret because it's national security and, and when people are allowed to have any kind of privacy or political or express a political opinion, basically. Yeah, well, especially when the definition is so vague, pretty much anything that, you know, most people whistleblow when they have something to criticise about what the government's doing and pretty much anything that's critical of a government can be deemed to be uh, a danger to that government and therefore for a danger to the security of the nation. Um, and the fact that that definition is so um, vague is 
serves as intimidating people who might think about speaking out. Um, but, yeah, and so we have the ca- case that, um, you know, anyone that's employed by the government is not allowed to criticise the government. I mean, people think communist China is bad and it is bad, but, you know, take a... And have it would to be hundreds a, of thousands of people. Yeah, yeah. The, the government's, for, if not the, the biggest employer in the country, and you're not allowed to publicly criticise your employer. There's someone from the tax office at the moment who... Um, revealed uh, information about the um, liberties the tax office takes, following up small debts that it deems people have and taking the money directly out of people's bank accounts, which is um, yeah, a controversial practice and only a practice that's only done towards people who don't have the financial resources to challenge the tax office, so small businesses and individuals. Um, and one of the tax office employees who spoke out against this after raising it in- internally is now facing 161 years in jail for doing this. Well, you know, that's something that I think is of um, concern to everybody. It was a public um, issue relevant to the general public that how the tax office um, targets particular people and, um, you know, makes life difficult for, um, you know, small taxpayers. Well, that should be a matter of public interest, but that does not stop the government going after this guy like his public enemy number one. Yeah, I mean, and and that's the same with the whistleblowers who have um, leaked information around the behaviour of the armed forces or whatever. I mean, the big case is the Afghan files that um, the ABC published that were leaked by a former military lawyer who's kind of going um, been arrested over those and been charged with breaching the Defence Act as well as the theft of Commonwealth property, who's on bail at the moment, faces trial over that. That's going to be a kind of um, a potentially um, case-setting case that could probably, you know, be um, of of a similar scale of punishment. And that is saying this is the brutalities of the Australian Defence Force that are definitely in the public interest to know and to be outraged about as this person was who leaked the documents and were as were the ABC journalists who who published them um you know like despicable acts of bar- criminal barbarity and then you say wait a second <laughs> this is not okay and then you get locked up for 150 years or whatever it is you know for the rest of your life so all of that kind of on top of the increasing kind of uh, criminalisation of all sorts of, well, activities and the um, prison population rapidly increasing, police powers, militarisation of the police, all becomes extremely intimidating then for the press and people who work in the public service and so on to ever speak out. I mean, that's the intention, right? Yeah, and I think the government... um the government knows that if you're going to send people into these um, horrific wars where they have to treat the civilian populations of Afghanistan and Iraq like the enemy and terrorise them day in, day out, that the soldiers doing this are going to do uh, horrific things and the government wants to send a clear message they'll always have their back. And that's the way, that's the reality of fighting wars and the government wants to fight more wars um, and be in a position to fight future wars and so they have to make it very clear that, um, you know, no matter what brutalities troops commit, they'll be protected. Um, and that's what um, this is aimed at. Um, 
But, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't also mention the uh, situation facing um, Julian Assange, who has been um, probably the world's most famous whistleblower, who has received, it appears, absolutely zero support from the Australian government, even though he's facing, um, you know, unprecedented charges in the US, um, treason charges against someone who's not even a US citizen, um, huge uh, jail, you know, hundreds of years in jail, 18 charges or whatever it is. Um, for exposing, you know, the crimes of the U.S. Empire, um, uh, and you know, the Australian government's not lifting a finger to help him, um, for even being criticised by their own uh, right-wing uh, supporters like Barnaby Joyce, um, and that's just a absolute, um, yeah, atrocious situation. And uh, people yeah. should be speaking out more, I think, in defence of Julian Assange. And the huge irony of all of that is the right and the Liberal Party and, you know, all of the conservatives in society are the ones who jump up and down the most about free speech and um, people should be able to say what they want and express whatever opinions they have, you know, however not politically correct they might be, you should be able to say that, you know, all your bigoted views. But then the people who do speak out and say, well, this is not even a view, it's a fact – here are some facts about the Australian military or the American military, as well in Julian Assange's case, then you're just door slammed behind your body as you are locked in solitary confinement, you know. Yeah, well, it just shows that the free speech rhetoric has always just been about bigotry should be okay, bigotry should be acceptable again, and the bigots don't openly argue for their bigoted ideas. They say that you should have the right to advocate them and publicly air them um, and that they should, shouldn't should be um, you know, repressed in any way or disapproved of. Um, it's not anything to do with freedom. Anyone that's concerned about freedom and people being able to express themselves should be absolutely appalled at the state of Australian society and speaking out against all manner of uh, measures the government's taken. But actually most of these people that supposedly advocate free speech are there cheering these on, yeah. if not actively themselves voting for them. So I think it just exposes what a fraud all that is, that it's just an uh, effort to rehabilitate bigoted ideas that they feel are on the back foot and are rightly on the back foot from my perspective. Um, and, yeah, we should be able to name that for what it is and not feel defensive that supposedly the right um, champions of freedom. And then the other aspect that's been written about a bit more recently is the whole thing about secret trials. So it's not even the case that we know all of the different people who are being punished for whistleblowing, like the the trial of Witness J, which you can read a bit about in, in um, some parts of the media, is about a prisoner who was placed in... Uh, well, the only reason... I can't remember what it was exactly that the reason that they found out about this trial, but it was basically a notice on a on a court door and people mm. were like, what is happening there? And so, no, it's secret. It's not listed anywhere. And And then I think when he complained about his treatment in prison, which is... When people said, well, wait, how did this person end up in prison and what for? And then nobody could find out because it's all secret. And he was actually put in um, solitary confinement. Then he was put in a sex offenders prison, even though he's basically an um, army intelligence officer kind of whistleblower. And we still don't know what that is about. But we now know that, um, and it's kind of revealed the fact that there are 506 secrecy, secrecy provisions in 176 pieces of Commonwealth legislation, 
So there are 358 criminal secrecy offences. And so that means that there's probably more than one of these secret mm. trials that have gone on. And potentially people are in prison that we don't even know um, what's happened to them. So when you think about kind of the totalitarian states and people just disappear, well, that actually happens in Australia too. Yeah, I mean, it, that case is astounding and it's kind of what um, Dick Cheney says. It's the unknown unknowns that are um, the worst. This is a definition of an unknown this unknown. This is Louise O'Shea <laughs> agreeing with Dick Cheney <laughs> on the record. Um, you know, the... Your known unknowns, you can fight. Your unknown unknowns, like, you know, we don't know that there's not many more people in this situation mm. locked up entirely under the veil of secrecy. The fact that one's come to light just suggests there could be many more. And I don't think anyone in their right mind would think twice about putting it past this government that that could well be going on. Australia, I mean, it's it's hardly the hotbed of struggles and, you know, there's constantly a need to start using these laws to repress people. There's all of this kind of, all of these whistleblowers all of the time that you keep needing to lock away and people organising to try to bring down the government or anything, although maybe a bit more um, since we've been seeing what we've been seeing with the um, bushfire crisis. But generally speaking, Australian society is pretty compliant. People go along with, you know, pretty... Um, rule following kind of people so what why are these laws increasingly getting worse like what is the government's objective well i think the government sees an opportunity to push through a whole lot of these laws and um really strengthen the power that they have to exercise over ordinary people um and they take the opportunity when it's offered to them um you know if there was a higher level of social conflict if we had a stronger uh, union movement if we had more um of uh, threats that the government was facing, no doubt they would be also trying to put through uh, special measures to strengthen their power, but they'd likely face a backlash. In times where our side is very weak, when society is very passive, the government senses an opportunity to um, to put through some of these measures that they may not want to use immediately, but they certainly want to have available to them in the event of some future uh, threat that they might face. And this is very similar to, I think, what happened with work choices when Howard put through work choices, the um, you know whole-scale attack on um, the right to organise and the um, working conditions of, of people. There, it wasn't in direct response to a powerful union movement that he was looking to suppress. It was that the unions were at a historic weak point, even they're at an even weaker point today, and the government and the Howard government saw an opportunity to really kick unions while they were down and make it harder for them to rebuild effectively. And I think that's, um, yeah, so that's a big part of how governments operate. When they have the chance, they take it. And I think we will um, see this when, um, when and if, and it needs to happen, there's a revival of struggle, more people willing to take on the government. We'll find ourselves confronted with the fact that they have far-reaching powers that can be used against us and we will have to um, deal with that. And I think any revival of struggle is going to also have to involve an element of fighting for civil rights. Um, you've just seen that already with the climate change movement, still in its fairly early stages. But as soon as people try to take any action that goes beyond just sort of quietly trying to make a point in a park on a Sunday afternoon somewhere, as soon as people try and up the ante um, in, in um, a accord with how 
uh, urgent the issue is, the government's starting to uh, deploy huge uh, force against them. So arresting people, um, trying to deny onerous conditions to prevent them getting bail or if they get bail to um, control their movements and whatnot. Um, and this is just the beginnings of a, the climate change movement. Imagine if, you know, there's a major union revival or the climate movement becomes more serious. Um, you know, the government has all that ready to go. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean that uh, these powers will be effective because, you know, you, you can collect metadata on everyone, but can you actually use it for any for any good if you're you're facing a mass uh, popular movement um, mm. that is united and stands together? Like you know, in Hong Kong, I'm sure they know that um, there's various communications amongst a huge proportion of the Hong Kong population about how much they hate the government. But you know, what can they do about it if people are prepared to stand together, mobilise in their millions, defend you know what their comrades are doing, no matter what tactics they adopt? You know, the government doesn't have laws they can push through to counter that mm. and you can imagine a scenario in the future where you know people are getting arrested or charged or different lo- different aspects of these laws are being um enacted and people are like wait a second this can't be legal this they can't be allowed to do that and then it's like oh yes they can actually the lawyers look at it and say yeah this is part of that whole infrastructure of national security crap that has been building since 9-11 but at the same time if people then have enough strength to turn around and say, well, it is legal, but, or, you know, it's lawful for them to be trying to do what they're doing to repress our struggle, but who cares? We're going to keep defying them anyway. Then all of that starts to crumble. So, I mean, mm. that is the thing to think about in terms of resistance. But on a broader scale, I mean, like, that it's kind of obvious for us as political activists and unionists and so on to worry about these laws, but... If that's not what people listening are thinking about, well, you know, if they're not using them, they're there about what, you know, is it really something or are we just kind of conspiracy theorists here? No, I think there's all sorts of ways. It's all this new climate is, or not new climate, this climate is starting to filter through and affect uh, like just everyday people going about their business. Um, so even just like this New Year's Eve, the... Um, uh, it was reported in The Age in the week or so, a few days before New Year's Eve, the police went around in Melbourne rounding up various people, pursuing you know various charges that they've had on the books that they haven't um, you know, uh, followed up. And all in the name, they said, of making for a safer New Year's uh, Eve celebration. And so just this idea that the police target people um, and, uh, and that arrests and police cracking down on people where there was no suggestion any of these charges they were following up had anything to do with, you know, some intent to cause trouble at New Year's Eve. But the very idea that police are going around, uh, uh, you know, cracking down on people should make us feel safer at New Year's Eve. Like, it's pretty mad. It's a sign of how normalised it's become. But also there's all sorts of other ways in which um, these powers are starting to impact on people. The information sharing... um, in Victoria, for instance, any information that you um, confide to or, or make known to um, Centrelink, to counsellors, to um, health services, to all, all sorts of sort of trusted um, professionals now can be readily accessed by the police on request. So the police have the right to access that information. Technically, they're supposed to only ac- uh, get access to it 
in the pursuit of um, uh, criminal matters. But as we know, that's often how the police, um, that's kind of the the way they make it palatable to get it um, through. But then once they have that right, that becomes normalised and the police feel they have a right to know, you know, does do people have drug problems? Where do they live? Have they got a history mm. of domestic trouble? So And add to that all the tech surveillance stuff as well. Yeah. And that the big tech companies are happy to hand over everything you've ever sent on Messenger. and Yeah, the police can get um, put surveillance on any device they want. Um, and so... Just if people think about, you know, the ramifications for that, you don't have to be, you know, uh, um, doing anything that uh, consciously trying to challenge the government, but suddenly you can find yourself in a situation where the government knows everything about you and that can affect things like um, maintaining custody of kids. Get, once you're caught up in the criminal justice system, um, you know, that has all sorts of far-reaching consequences in your life and, you know, this is affecting a broader and broader uh, array of people, not just, you know, someone that you wants to take it as government. a terrorist. Yeah. Exactly. That's sort of, um, that's that kind of slow creep of the authoritarianism in terms of surveillance and that, that aspect of, of the thing. But another way I think that this kind of authoritarianism is evident to ordinary people right now is, the, is elements of the bushfire crisis. Because there's been... Um, reports. So we all saw that amazing footage of the residents in Cabago uh, losing their shit and, and driving Scott Morrison out of town and you know, hounding him out and uh, you know, becoming heroes around the country. There, there are reports on social media that haven't been picked up by mainstream media, but there are reports from people who I trust uh, that after Scott Morrison left town, he sent riot police or riot police came back in um, and harassed those residents. Now, these would be people then who have you know, possibly lost their homes, mm. living in a tent on the football ground, uh, you know, express their anger at the Prime Minister whose, you know, failings on this are fucking multitude. Uh, and then they get harassed by the cops who undoubtedly are using the powers that the New South Wales government have given them to, to repress democratic protest. So that's that, that protest space or the loss of that protest space becomes a weapon that's wielded against people who are expressing their fury at the fucking climate crisis. You know, so I think there's that aspect to it as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, and the other big thing um, to consider really is the, is the is the treatment of the trade unions and the trade union movement, which we've covered on a previous episode of this podcast with Jerem Small. But just the idea that a bunch of the laws that they want to bring in um, against the union movement can also then bleed into other areas of civil society, basically. So a bunch of the precedents that are set with that, um, the treatment of workers can start to affect other areas. Yeah, I mean, the unions have been at the forefront of um, dealing with the consequences of this environment. And partly it's because the unions have been on the defensive and not put up very adequate resistance to what the government's tried to do. Um, but, you know, the the uh, bill the government tried to put uh, the end of last ensuring year, integrity. ensuring integrity bill, creepy title. Yeah, a, a disaster. You know, if, if you'd have to expect the government will get some version of it through eventually, and it will be a disaster for unions. Um, and there's not been, well, in relation to the government's last attempt to get it through, there hasn't been a single demonstration by the unions um, against it, and yet it represents such a whole scale attack on union democracy and. 
uh, and that's not just a question of, you know, the principle of the democratic rights of unions to organise separately from government, but it's also going to be a very practical effect um, in that unions will, it will be very much more difficult for unions to take the sort of action that's needed to defend people's um, uh, wages and conditions and basic living standards. And so that comes hand in hand with the government put out a report last year about their vision for industrial relations, which involves a more cooperative model than the traditional adversarial uh, model of um, that the Australian industrial relations has previously taken. And this is just the classic kind of Orwellian doublespeak. On the one hand, you have the government talking about cooperation and more harmony in work in the workplace, while they're um, basically uh, putting through these absolutely unprecedented authoritarian measures uh, against unions, giving governments the right to step in, take over the functioning of unions on the basis of even the most minor um, transgression of um, not just criminal law, but also civil, you know, orders from uh, civil, civil orders. Um, and, you know, they, these laws are, as I think it's been mentioned a number of times, uh, unprecedented. The only um, laws as uh, draconian as these were in under the dictatorship in Brazil and, you know, in no democratic regime ha- ha- is there the provision for government intervention like this into unions. Um, and this is what we're supposed- supposedly meant to accept. This is all about creating more harmonious and cooperative workplaces, um, but it's actually about stamping out the, the rights of unions to defend people's conditions. And that's one of the main ways people are going to start to feel the effects of um, this authoritarian regime, the idea that it's normalised that the state should have this power over every area of social uh, social life, that, you know, the government, the idea the government has the right to step in and take over unions would have been absolute anathema even just a few decades ago. And now people feel, well, you know, even if you don't like it, you can't resist it. And mm. this is a very bad situation that where serious resistance is called for. Which is when you then start to think about what the official political opposition is supposed to be with currently the Australian Labor Party and the Greens. But um, I guess if you think about the kind of whole architecture of national security and state repression and denial of civil liberties, the Labor Party might shift a wall by half an inch, but they basically agree with the whole plan, the whole blueprint, and they've been complicit in every step of the way and voting for these laws, in fact, enthusiastically endorsing a whole lot of them. I mean, the union stuff is probably the exception because it's really, it's like, it's who they're made of, it's where they come from, but hardly a fighting kind of response even to that. I mean, is there any hope in the Labor Party? Well, no. I mean, the Labor Party (laughs) is not, um, not done anything to indicate it's prepared to put up a fight to any of this on the all the national security measures, yeah, like the occasional little tweaking. But basically their strategy is we go along with the Liberals. We're in lockstep over this issue so that we can't be wedged because they've decided that that's electoral suicide to be seen, to be soft on the issue of national security. But, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because if no one puts up a um, coherent uh, opposition to, uh, to what the government's doing, then people feel they have no choice but to accept it, and that confirms that you have to go along with Labor capitulating on everything or, you know, Labor um, actively agreeing uh, with everything. Um, and so, yeah, like it's 
it would be mad to try and to think that Labor's going to be um, organising any serious opposition that's going to have to come from some other quarter. It's going to have to come from people who um, want to stand up to this, getting together and organising and fighting back. And it, you know, it's not taking any major organised form at the moment, but you can tell it's right under the surface, as Liam just referred to. The reaction about the fires shows that you know, this is Scott Morrison who won an election just months ago, or well, maybe not months ago, not in the fairly recent memory. Um, and yet, you know, the, it's basically um, uh, can muster zero legitimacy at the moment in the face of a national disaster, which traditionally works to the advantage mm. of sitting politicians. But the outpouring of hatred for the guy um, is just uh, astounding. And it shows, I think, you just scratch the surface of society. There is not strong support. There is actually seething contempt for politicians, for the political class, for the idea that they will ever do anything to help people, the idea that they're just um, you know, self-interested, beholden to big business, coal industry, um, uh, and unconcerned, callous towards the concerns of ordinary people. And you know that's part of what, what drives the authoritarianism, that if you can't convince people you have to force them and that's what um that's what society has to offer us and we need to do something about it yeah i'm gonna stop this recording because i was gonna go i think that's better than what i was gonna say but uh, i wanted to go back a bit and um uh talk about when we talk about the kind of authoritarianism and the problems of the labor party uh the big example for me is the way that the labor party have played a leading role over the last few decades in in building and maintaining the infrastructure of refugee incarceration. Because when, you know, in the the Labor Party, you know, they built the detention centres in the first place. It's their policy. It's absolutely bipartisan on both parties. Um, they are, and, and it's not just in terms of the political parties, but the whole Australian state backs this thing. You know, the High Court of Australia has ruled on numerous occasions that it is perfectly legal to detain people indefinitely, forever, without charge, mm-hmm. without trial, without anything, without any right to appeal, um, because they happen to be refugees. You know, I mean, that that's the baseline of the way the state views uh, people in this country, that it is okay to lock, to lock them up indefinitely. Um, you know, we, we make the point often often that, you know, that, that the way governments treat refugees is kind of what they'd like to get away, do to the rest of us if they could get away with it, you know, and I think that's very true when you look at Australia. And, and the important point there is to, is to remind us over and over again that the Labor Party are um, not just complicit in this, but of over recent decades, actually been at the forefront of it. Mm, I think that's definitely true. And that's an example, I think, of how, you know, opposing racism is not just a moral question, although it is a very morally compelling um, point of view, but it's also a real material concern to ordinary people that what can be done to refugees is eventually done to everybody. Yeah, the fact that refugees... Or Aboriginal people. Or Aboriginal people. That, um, you know, what happens to the most vulnerable is extended eventually to everybody, that refugees are locked up having committed no crime. They're detained indefinitely. Well, increasingly, that's what, you know, they extend again and again how long people can be held without charge, how young, you know, now 14-year-olds in Victoria can be held, um, people as young as 14 can be held on that basis. And the slow march towards this getting ever more, um, you know, ever more uh rights for the state to treat us this way is follows what happens to the most vulnerable and they justify that on the basis of those people are different to you and you should accept that they're treated differently but um, actually you eventually learn they're not different from the rest of the population that we're all in this together and what starts somewhere ends 
closer to home. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the immediate thing, and we'll finish on this, is um, I think what we can take in the face of this kind of creeping, stomping authoritarianism maybe is a better way of putting it, but all of the stuff that we've just been talking about, the lesson we can take from those residents in those areas who are telling Scott Morrison exactly what they think and refusing to shake his hand is to not be intimidated by it. I mean, in some ways you can't afford to be intimidated by it. And so as people organizing to fight back against all of these injustices, I mean, at the at this point, we can't stop them passing these laws or implementing them. But in the future, I think that kind of, um, yeah, that defiance in the face of all of it is really the only option and it has to be. And so thank you, Louise, for joining us um, and Liam. And just wanted to announce um, when you're listening to this that there are protests happening um, on Friday the 10th of January. So hopefully after you've listened to this um, and you haven't already missed them, but if you can get along in all the major cities, it'll be kind of after work time. And it's organised by Uni Students for Climate Justice. If you look at their Facebook page, there's all the listings for the various uh, demonstrations about the response to the bushfire crisis and calling um, to sack Scott Morrison, which is a good first step, obviously not the final step. And then also um, there's a bunch of protests coming up against the religious discrimination laws, which we haven't talked about specifically, but I think another way to um, tell ScoMo and his bigot mates what we think about that. So they'll be happening in, in February, the 9th of Feb in Melbourne and the 8th of Feb in Sydney. And I will also announce that... Um, the program for the annual Marxism conference will be going online later this week. It's another project that I'm working on. Uh, so people should start having a look at that and getting your tickets for the biggest gathering of activists um, on the left in this country. So um, there's a lot to do in 2020 and solidarity with all the people out there listening in difficult situations right now. And um, we have a world to win. <laughs> <laughs>